Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade, Derek Davison. And we're excited to welcome to the podcast our friend, Pascal Robert. Pascal is the co-host of This Is Revolution podcast, and he's also a contributor to Newsweek and the Black Agenda Report. Pascal, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the invitation. So we invited you to talk about Haiti. So why don't we start with a nice, easy question. Haiti how did we get here? Well, you know, there there are a, f- a few ways of addressing that question. We can give you the 200-plus-year version. We can give you the 20-year version, or we can give you the century-old version. Uh, I don't know if we want to go into a 200-year version of Haitian history for your audience, but basically one of the things that has to be understood to explain the current situation with Haiti is to understand that much of contemporary Haitian politics ties to the origins of how the country came to be. And to give this a brief understanding, for your audience that does not know, Haiti was the first country in the Western Hemisphere post-transatlantic slave trade to be born of a successful slave revolt that basically culminated in the birth of the nation in 1804. It was a 13-year revolt that went from 1791 to 1804. And one of the things that we have to understand in terms of the proximity of the Haitian Revolution to the early founding of the United States is that George Washington is president of the United States when the Haitian Revolution begins. And for those who are students of global history, understanding that a country in which slavery is the main means of political economy during a time in which that is the center of political economy in the Western Hemisphere, having a slave revolt and having blacks and people of color create that nation is going to cause a a logical hostility to the surrounding nations. So one of the consequences of Haiti being born of a black and mixed race slave revolt is that it was generally isolated amongst the countries in the Western world. And Largely as a result of that isolation, the posture of the governing forces in the country always heavily invested in militarization and defensive posturing and building up of the army to protect itself from the potential incursions of European and Western countries coming in to re-enslave the population. And one of the things that's a large problem in terms of what develops in Haiti is an internal conflict between various classes of individuals whose position in the post-Haitian revolution political economy are largely a product of way that where they were positioned in the pre-Haitian revolutionary political economy. The pre-revolutionary name of Haiti was Saint-Domingue. That was the French colonial name for the, for the island. And what you have to understand is that, generally speaking, the population was divided into three different classes. You have 
the uh, what is pejoratively known as what some would call the Bosal, which were Africans who were not born on the island, but were transported to the island as slaves. They made up the supermajority of the actual blacks on the island. As a matter of fact, at the commencement of the Haitian Revolution in 1791, they made up anywhere up to 65 to 67 percent of the blacks on the island. Then you have the Creole blacks, the Creole blacks who were blacks who were born on the island, who were more acculturated to French culture, were more in alignment with the the norm, the exigences of French society. Many of them were free people of color. Some of them even owned black slaves. Okay. Then you had the mixed race or what in Haiti we call the mulatto or the mixed race blacks who were also more proximate to whites who owned 25% of the African slaves on the island and also had a bit of an antagonism between the Creole blacks and themselves because they had a kind of internal antagonism about their positionality relative to the white plantation owner and power structure. The reason why this is important is because these class tensions manifest throughout the the history of Haiti, even up until the contemporary moment. Because one of the things that one has to understand is that the assassination of the man who becomes the founder of the nation state of Haiti, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, is a consequence of him wanting to do land repatriation or land reform to the peasants who fought in the revolution. And this was such... And, uh, 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 anathema to not only the mulatto free people of color, but also to the Creole black generals that they had him assassinated. And you can make the argument that everything that transpires in Haitian history after the 1806 assassination of Dessalines is a downhill manifestation of a, a, a combat between the Creole black class and the mixed race elite class who are trying to control the political economy and use the African labor force as a kind of agrarian servant force to maintain or replicate the plantation economy to the best of their likelihood. This is combined with the fact that because Haiti as a quote unquote black nation was not getting the kind of financial support from European nations. For example, after the American revolution, the United States is getting lines of credit from, you know, the Dutch and all of these European countries. After the Haitian revolution, France basically demands reparations from Haiti to France to indemnify for the loss of the property of the actual slave and plantation owners. And this is something that is not fully paid off until literally 1947, I believe. France threatened to invade Haiti and reimpose slavery if Haiti did not agree to a staggering amount in reparations, 150 million francs, 30 times Haiti's annual revenue. Which is like years after my father was born. So Haiti is not only isolated because of the way it is birthed as a nation, it is economically sanctioned for having the gall to be a country born of a slave revolt. To take it back to how this gets to the contemporary situation in Haiti, 
Basically, the United States doesn't recognize Haiti until the 1860s after the Civil War because in the consciousness of American slaveholders, the notion of a free black nation state of former slaves is a danger to the plantation economy in the South. So as a result, the country is basically, you know, in terms of official recognition, isolated, though there are periods in which trade is occurring with Haiti, it is not really officially recognized by the United States till the 1860s, even though Haiti does things like help Simon Bolivar liberate southern country, the South American countries during the Bolivarian Revolution, even though there are Haitians who actually fought to fight against slavery in Texas before Texas became independent and went to the United States. You know, Haiti as a small country is ever present in trying to fight against the presence of slavery in the Western Hemisphere, even to the point where they are welcoming former slaves in North America to come and find uh, 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 sanction, find, find actually uh, a safe haven, if you will, from the actual vicissitudes of slavery. Getting to the 20th century, the United States, because of political instability and the desire to actually protect Haiti from the influence of Europe during a period of time in which the Panama Canal is being built, built invades Haiti in 1915 with, in, in an occupation that continues up until 1934, which is a vicious occupation that basically causes the United States to centralize the Haitian economy, make the capital and Port-au-Prince the center of all things that normally occur in the country, and forces Haiti to basically become a vassal state of the United States. I would make the argument, and I don't think there are too many Haitians who would deny it, that since the U.S. occupation in 1915 to 1934, Haiti has basically never been a country with sovereignty in that every president since that period of time, if he has existed in the uh, opposite desires of the U.S. State Department of the United States, he was either faced with a coup or removed. Largely, one of the things that also happens in this period of time that we must remember is that there is an influx of non-Haitian commercial actors into the country that come from usually the Middle East, Syria, uh, uh, Lebanon, and places of that nature that start in the late 19th century and the early 20th century. What is fascinating is that the United States, and there's, there's actually scholarship about this, in the, early, in the early 20th century, gives them preferential commercial treatment to sell American merchandise in Haiti. And what ends up happening is that this class of immigrants from the Middle East, some from Europe, become a buffer class and eventually develop into the contemporary Haitian oligarchy. Now, the reason why that is important is that pretty much from the Haitian occupation, from the American occupation, excuse me, American occupation up until the modern day, the Haitian oligarchy pretty much works in tandem with the State Department to, to subterfuge any domestic political occurrence in Haiti that changes the political reality and the power dynamics in terms of the political economy, changing the condition of the significant amount of Haitian poor who are peasants who live in the outskirts of the country and redistribute wealth to their benefit. So to get to the contemporary moment, in the last 25 to 30 years of Haiti, 
going back post, say, the development of the Papa Doc regime. Now, the Papa Doc regime was a kind of revanchist black nationalist regime that comes about in 1957 to 1971, who uses the charade of black nationalism to basically take control of the state and becomes excessively brutal and has profound reprisals against the mulatto elite, but actually was working in conglomeration with this foreign uh, oligarch class of Syrians, Lebanese, and Europeans, and starts the first time where you see the large numbers of Haitians leave the country and go abroad. Like my parents left Haiti during the Papadoc regime. It was a brutal regime that was very corrupt and really is uh, the first period of time when Haitians become so alienated from the country that they leave. Few people, it can be safely said, have been so downtrodden, so badly used as the Haitians under Duvalier. His power was the power of the gun. His politics, the politics of the firing squad. After Papa Doc, who leaves power in 1971, his son, Jean-Claude Duvalier, baby Doc, comes in from 71 to 86. He is really the birth of the neoliberal economy of extraction in Haiti, which takes the country into the downward spiral that really starts to neoliberalize the economy in terms of the, the resources and the state enterprises, but is removed when his presence is no longer necessary because one of the reasons why the United States basically tolerates the Duvalier dictatorships, both father and son, is because of Cold War diplomacy. In other words, they were the most anti-communist guys on the island, and they kept communism at bay. But in in 86, we understand that communism is starting, the Soviet Union is starting to lose its its, uh, power in the world, and the need for the Duvaliers becomes obsolete, and the United States helps remove them, and they're taken out. What happens is that there's a power vacuum that comes about as a result of the the fleeing of Jean-Claude Duvalier, and eventually there's an election in the early 90s where Jean-Bertrand Aristide, who was a priest, takes power, I believe, in, in uh, 91. Uh, the thing about Aristide is that he's a very big supporter of liberation theology, and his campaign is about doing justice to the poor and helping the poor. And for those who know, liberation theology is basically the the, the, the closest you get to a to a Catholic Marxist redistributive kind of political economy, because Aristide is so vocal in his opposition to the elite class who has generally been a plague on the country, not only with the oligarchs, but going back to 1806, where we have these mulatto elites who have a certain kind of class color tension with the black majority. He is very vocal in his opposition to these classes, and they remove him in a CIA and U.S.-sponsored coup d'etat in the early 90s under the of the presidency of George H.W. Bush, the father. Aristide is returned under the Clinton administration, but under the, the, under the auspices that he agrees to neoliberal structural adjustment packages that really economically devastate the country where state assets have to be sold. And this is the period of time in which the Clintons really become involved in the, in the economic affairs of Haiti. They actually have some of the Clinton acolytes who are beneficiaries of the selling of Haitian state assets, and they actually acquire some of those resources. So, Aristide comes back into power, and there are really contentious, contentious relationships with Aristide and the international community because 
the international community, even though Haiti is a very poor country in the Western Hemisphere, one thing Daniel Bessner, I'm sure, can tell you as a student of global and political economies, <laughs> that even in poor countries, because there's a lack of actual infrastructure, the return on investment is very high. So even though the country is poor, you can make a higher profit margin because there's no actual state infrastructure to regulate how much you can extort for goods and services and resources. So even though Haiti is a poor country, there are multimillionaires who own businesses in Haiti because there is no infrastructure to protect how prices are structured to gouge citizens for goods and services. So as a result of that fact, international financial actors have always been interested in making sure that Haiti is poor. Not only that, because Haitians have been a very effective low-wage service sector for uh, clothing manufacturing. Haynes has had factories in Haiti. I mean, one of the reasons why Aristide was so aggressively fought is because he wanted to increase the Haitian minimum wage from something like pennies an hour to like a quarter. I mean, some obscenely ridiculous low amount of money in terms of how much he wanted to increase it. But even that was too much for the Western powers that be. So eventually, uh, in in 2003, there is an agreement that comes out of Canada called the Ottawa Accord, which was an agreement between the Canadian government, uh, some say the U.S. State Department was involved, that realizes that uh, Agustin is not in line with what the Western powers or what were known as the core group. The core group are a co- coalition of foreign embassies, including uh, France, Canada, the United States, Spain, mostly European powers, who generally have a stronghold in determining the policies that affect Haiti after this 2003 Ottawa Accord. It is at this through this Ottawa Accord that the agreement to remove Aristide in two. 2004, with the with the assistance of the United States State Department and, and, and uh, George W. Bush administration, is taken out, and Aristide is taken out in the coup. His supporters are violently, violently massacred, and this is the birth of a massive period of 20 to 30 year instability in Haiti where the UN occupying forces come into the country and the country pretty much stays occupied. And it is from the period of the Aristide regime and the political instability of that era until today where the, the downward spiral of the Haitian nation state reaches to a point where we literally have gangs who are taking uh, control of the contemporary body politic. And to, to explain how we get there, we have to realize that after uh, Aristide is taken out, his vice president comes to power, Préval, Préval, because he's forced to have to adhere to these neoliberal structural agreement packages, he is selling off state assets. These state assets, like the ports, the uh, uh, the, the state electric company, the uh, state cement country, country, uh, company, these were the only ways in which the Haitian state were able to acquire revenue to subsidize services, the few services that it was able to engage in. What ends up happening is that 
as the Haitian nation state is losing money, the NGO industrial complex is coming into the country and supplanting the function of the state while the state is being pauperized. So NGOs are coming in and starting to fulfill the actual role of the state. Not only that, the oligarch class, remember we talked about how the oligarchs are, are the descendants of these Syrian and Lebanese families, are extracting fees from the state for goods and services at a higher rate because the state is no longer able to provide services itself. So instead of having the state-run electric company or the state-run cement company or the state-run ports, you now have the oligarch class starting to sell cement, sell electricity, or wanting to get shares and control of the ports in the country. And this actually starts the country from Preval downward into a kind of spiraling downward pauperization. One of the good things that happens under Preval is that with the help of post-Chavezista Venezuela, we get a, a basically an, uh, an oil deal with, uh, with Venezuela that uh, uh, allows Haiti to get subsidized oil from Venezuela to help bring down the cost of energy in the country. And, and this becomes a problem because after Preval leaves and we have the Haiti earthquake, there's an election and basically a puppet of the U.S. State Department who was hand-selected pretty much by Hillary Clinton, a man named Michelle Martelli, who was literally a Haitian band leader, a singer, compa saying, compa is basically Haitian, Haitian jazz music. And he is picked by the, uh, literally the, the, uh, being in the sham election by the, uh, uh, Obama administration through Hillary Clinton to be president of the country and oversee the development of of Haiti post the 2010 earthquake. Because of not just the mobilization of international support, uh, which the U.S. helped to lead, but also because of uh, strong uh, leadership from the Haitian people themselves and uh, President uh, Martelli, uh, we've begun to see progress. And what ends up happening the petro Carib funds that were given by Venezuela are corruptly uh, absconded by Martelli and his party. His party is called the PHTK party. And they, they abscond funds and they do a very shoddy job of the development of the country, but they are really considered to be so in line with what the United States wanted. Because one thing we have to understand is that the United States is not interested in having a sovereign Haiti with a left-wing government because there are many of the corporate actors like Haynes, like the, like the, uh, you know, the clothing manufacturers, like other industries. For example, there's gold in Haiti. Canada extracts gold from Haiti as well. Other resources that have been recently discovered on the island that do not want an administration, particularly post pink tide in Latin and South America to govern the country. And that's always been a fear of the United States and the West post-U.S. occupation, that there's some type of left administration, not only in Haiti, but anywhere in Latin and South America. So the Martelli administration is supported because it's considered to be a kind of 
neo-devalurist reactionary right-wing administration that works at the behest of the State Department to basically help facilitate neoliberalization. As I stated earlier, since the actual state coffers in Haiti had been emptied as a consequence of the structural agreement packages that sold off state assets, the oligarchs are putting more pressure on the states to give them control over the development and the rebuilding of the con- of the country. And this is where we're going to move further to explain what happens contemporarily. After the Haiti earthquake, there's something interesting that happens. Because traditionally the only actors that had any, had any part in the economic say in what happened in the country were the Haitian oligarchs, there was not a lot of competition for development projects, rebuilding, housing, construction. What happens after the Haiti earthquake is that International competitors, as well as even foreign NGOs, start to come in to do development projects. And what Martelli and his uh, his prime minister realize is that they can get better deals from foreign countries to do development projects in the country that they can get from the oligarchs. So this starts to cause a tension between the Martelli administration and the oligarchs over who actually gets to control the development projects in the state. This is very important because this tension is what eventually leads to the assassination of Jovenel Moise. So after uh, uh, Michel Martelli does his term, he picks this guy, uh, uh, Jovenel Moise, who is an unknown, you know, some people call him a, a plant, a, a, a banana farmer, uh, who, you know, basically comes from a, a poor class in the Haitian society. Haiti's a very class stratified society. He's unknown. And what is interesting is that the, 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 the hand picking of Jovenel Moise by, uh, Michelle Martelli is reminiscent of a phenomenon that goes back to the 19th century of Haitian politics. It's a phenomenon called la politique de doubleur. La politique de doubleur is something that the elite mixed race mulatto class of Haitians did in the, throughout the 19th century, where they would get a dark complexioned presidential candidate to run under their control but who would, in his campaign, use rhetoric that would galvanize the black masses to believe that he was a servant of their interest. And once he came into power, he would betray them and actually work at the behest of the mulatto or mixed-race elite. And what many Haitians believed is that Jovenel Moïse was a contemporary manifestation of la politique du bleu. As a matter of fact, it's really funny. I have an uncle, one of my Haitian uncles said that Barack Obama was the closest manifestation of la politique du bleu we've ever seen in the United States. I always found that to be kind of funny. But the, um, the point that, that was made is that initially Jovenel Moïse was pretty much uh, a puppet of the oligarchs. You know, he was supported by the oligarchs. The oligarch families thought that he was going to give them his, their cut of the ports of the, uh, the contracts for the, ele- uh, for the electric companies, cement factories, all of these other, 
uh, contracts that needed to be done. So there were a series of contracts that were expected to be given to the oligarchs. Now, because Haiti is in a period of austerity at that time, because there's no revenue coming from the state, because state assets are sold, and there's also a period of time where there's no oil subsidies coming from uh, Brazil anymore because that money was dried up by the prior, prior administration, the country is having problems generating rough funds. So uh, Jovenel Moise makes a decision, basically, that he is going to try to levy fees against the oligarchs and start to seek international competitors for these domestic contracts and not be willing to, to fulfill his agreements to give them to the oligarch families. And pretty much... Uh, my conclusion is that the reason why Moise is assassinated is because the oligarchs pretty much in agreement with the United States State Department because Moise is a headache for the State Department because the country's unstable. People are protesting his administration. You know, there's austerity in the country. Uh, uh, even even uh, publications in the United States are saying how the State Department is saying these guys got to go. It is assumed by most Haitians that the Haitian oligarchy in agreement with in agreement with the, with the U.S. State Department, have Moise assassinated and he's basically killed with the with, with at at uh, with at the hands of a series of Colombian mercenaries who are paid off to do the hit. And at that stage, the country goes into complete chaos. You know, people are protesting. Moise is now made to be this great hero in the consciousness of the Haitian people. And the United States pretty much uh, handpicks eventually the guy who becomes the puppet leader of the country, who is now Ariel Henry. Ariel Henry was a doctor who really uh, was worked in various administrations that was opposed to Aristide. And he is literally just governing as all of these gangs who many people believe are subsidized by various political factions. Some argue that the gangs are subsidized by the oligarchs because the oligarchs want to maintain the chaos so that when the decision is made as to when elections will be held, that the State Department that normally works in tandem with them will depend on them to decide who governs the country. And some will say that it is people within the former uh, political administrations of the past who are choosing rival gangs to protect their interests in terms of who will run when elections are had. And there's some who even say, say that they are factions of the current administration. The bottom line is that the chaos particularly in the capital, is so bad that the United States gives off uh, signals that it's interested in occupying Haiti to calm things down because of the chaos of the gangs. And this raises an uproar in the international community because pretty much any time the U.S. or the West or Minusta, Minusta was the U.N. occupying force, Anytime the U.S. or the West sells any kind of military force to occupy Haiti, Haitian people are abused. They're antagonized. When the, when Minusta came last time, which is the U.N. occupying force that came after the after the earthquake, they pulled they 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 poured toxic feces into the drinking wells uh, where rice is grown in Haiti and brought cholera to the country that caused 
thousands of Haitians to die of cholera. You know, they were raping peasant women. It was a disaster. So the thing you have to understand is that Haitians are very sensitive to the notion of Westerners reoccupying the country in an attempt to gain control over the goods and services of the country and abuse the large majority of Haitians who are unfortunately poor. Uh, now, the last word we hear is that Canada is now thinking about sending air military strikes down to Haiti to control the gangs, which is, again, having Haitians very worried about the potentiality for occupation. Not that there aren't some Haitians who think occupation is the only option, but I, as well as most of the Haitian comrades I know, are completely opposed to Haitian occupation. And pretty much that is the state of affairs that exists in the country today. I hope I did a good job of giving you kind of like a 200-year history pretty much. <laughs> that was extraordinary. That was great. Um, uh, uh, thank you. My first follow-up to that would be, what does the United States want with respect to Haiti? And, and uh, you know, there's a whole history, obviously, of U.S.-Haitian interaction that we could uh, talk about and, and that the, the idea of what the United States wants to sort of extract or get out of this, uh, this place changes over time. So I, I, just focusing on sort of the contemporary reality and... Uh, particularly around the Moise assassination, you know, as you said, he's he, there's this sort of overlapping interest between the oligarchs in Haiti and the U.S. State Department and the U.S. government. But for somewhat, it seems somewhat different reasons. The oligarchs are upset because uh, Moise is kind of, you know, uh, going back on the deal where he's supposed to govern on their behalf. Uh, for the State Department, it's more, you know, he's he's politically, you know, stayed in power too long, maybe, or, you know, people are upset, there's unrest, there's uh, instability, and and they kind of, oh, they overlap in the sense that they both want to get rid of him. Uh, I'm, my, I guess my question is, how how far does that overlap go at this particular moment in history? I think that the reality is, what the United States is interested in is, number one, neutralizing the gang activity, and going back to a status quo in which the peasant labor force that works at the behest of U.S. economic interests, such as, you know, clothing manufacturers can go back to work, that the United, that a, a president that pretty much works at the behest of the U.S. State Department is chosen with an election that is controlled by the West and the core group in the United States, and that, uh, the oligarchs still maintain their economic status quo in terms of managing the economy. So they want to maintain the bad old days. But the problem is, is that the Haitian movement class, the actual radical kind of peasant class is becoming more and more unwilling to adhere to the status quo going back to from the rise of Aristide to, the, to today. And they are very aware of how the neoliberalization of the economy works to the, to the disservice. And the United States is, is caught between a rock and a hard place in that Biden does not want a messy U.S. occupation of Haiti on his hands, particularly at a time in which his foreign policy has been scrutinized by you know the Republicans. 
Second of all, Biden also doesn't want an immigration crisis on his hands either, where Haitians are showing up on the shores of, of South Florida as a consequence of, you know, gang activity, so on, which is already starting to happen in other parts of Latin America and even in the United States as well. And at the same time, he, he's got to find a way to maintain control of the status quo. So the way I'm looking at it is that the Biden administration is going to try to use a proxy state like Canada or even a larger Caribbean state to perform the first stage of military control to try to subdue the gangs while providing support and keeping his his administration out of the actual control of the situation because I think that it would be too politically messy for Biden to engage in a reoccupation of Haiti a year, you know, literally uh, a year away from a presidential election. I don't think that's a good look. I think that's the last thing he wants. Uh, I'm, I'm, I would argue that I think that if, you know, if he had to, if he could change time, he probably would have tried to avoid the assassination of uh, the Moise of Moise as president because it led to such chaos. But at, at but the reality is, you know, this is the point that we're in right now. And the core group, those foreign embassies with the United States, are really kind of in a quandary in terms of what to do with the country and. Elections, no one is talking about when they can have elections because it's, you know, who is going to be running. The country is unstable. And to be very, very honest, that is the situation with the country as it is right now. The civil society in Haiti, which we had various uh, civil actors who tried to come up with accords. We had one called the Montana Accord or the Louisiana Accord, which were civil society members from Haiti and the diaspora who tried to come together with plans to basically provide transitional mechanisms to bring forth electoral electoral capacity to change governments. And at every juncture, the Al-Yelleri administration undercut the capacity of these various civil society institutions to implement those types of accords. And don't forget, Ali is working at the behest of the West and the core group as well. So the question becomes, what exactly is the West looking for? And I don't have an immediate answer to that question because my answer is I don't think the United States really knows what it wants in the current dilemma. I do know one thing is clear that one of the leaders of the gangs who's considered to be this kind of head leader, whose name is Jimmy Barbecue Cherizier, uh, who's the leader of the G9 gangs. Now, there are some people who actually believe that uh, one of them is a uh, longtime a journalist uh, out of the United States who has a, a newspaper named I Haiti Liberté, who's I, I know I know quite well, whose name is Kim Ives. He argues that uh, Jimmy Barbecue Cherizier is a kind of Robin Hood like figure. He's really not a parasitic gang leader, and he's trying to engage in some kind of like almost kind of revolutionary 
redistributive politics, so on and so forth. Most Haitians do not believe that. Most Haitians see Jimmy Chazier as just another run-of-the-mill gang leader. But what is fascinating, though, is that almost all of the efforts to target the gangs in Haiti, from the Canadians to the United States, put him as public enemy number one, the guy that we have to get out. It's almost like they forget about the rest of the gangs and it's like, we've got to get rid of Jimmy Chazier. He's the one we've got to go. Now, I think that Jimmy Chazier is playing two sides. He's playing a double-edged uh, kind of game here, a double face, if you will. He's talking that like I'm a revolutionary Che Guevara type shtick at one side, but I think at another side, he's probably cutting deals with either some oligarchs or various political actors to protect their interests while he's there. I am not one of the ones who's totally sold that Chazier is some kind of benevolent actor uh, on the behalf of the Haitian peasantry. I don't particularly buy that. Another interesting phenomenon that we see is that the Canadians which is something that's unprecedented in Haitian history, is that they have been uh, sanctioning uh, former Haitian presidents and some oligarchs accusing them of supporting the gangs. That's a rather big deal because if you understand that the Martelli, who was the former Haitian president that was chosen by the State Department, and, and the oligarchs work at the behest of the international community, for them to be named by the Haitian government and be for sanctioned for supporting these gangs demonstrates that there might be a fracture in the international community in terms of their tolerance of these actors because things have gotten so bad that they want to shake up the hierarchy of governance in terms of who is actually in control or who they can deal with. So I'm not ready to say that they're ready to displace the oligarchs as their buffer class, but maybe they're willing to play a certain kind of chess game with certain people amongst the oligarchy who had all power are neutralized while other oligarchs are put in position to maintain the status quo, but with different uh, families in positions of power, because I'm sure, as you guys know, and this is not uncommon in Latin South America, Haiti is not the only country that has a kind of uh, foreign oligarchy. You see these kind of Middle Eastern oligarchies all over Latin South America, as a matter of fact. But what happens is that because Haiti is such a poor country and their ability to extract good services and resources is so extreme and they so much work, they so much represent everything that is opposite of what the Haitian Revolution stood for, that their presence is even more noxious than you would see in maybe a Mexico, a Latin America, or Jamaica, or in another country. I'm curious what you make of the fact that the U.S. government has essentially taken over the prosecution of the Moise assassination case. This is on the basis that uh, you know, part of the, the plot was hatched, I guess, in the United States or, you know, on U.S. soil. So there's some jurisdiction here. The public argument that's made is uh, the Haitian government, which it, it is, 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 you know, has collapsed, basically. It's, it's almost non-existent. So to prosecute these people, uh, you know, it's, it's necessary for it to be done in the U.S. But it also gives the U.S. 
control over how this prosecution is handled and who actually gets prosecuted and, uh, you know, what they're able to say in court or, or what's able to re- be revealed in court to a, uh, an extent that might not be the case if it was done in Haiti. I'm just curious your, your thoughts on that. Oh, no, it's, 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 it's a perfect, uh, perfect storm, you know, a storm of events that come together to give the United States plausible deniability in terms of certain actors. It creates, it allows the United States to create the narrative that they're interested in justice without having itself be implement, uh, implicated in any way in the actual assassination. So, I mean, I, I, it is a fact that, you know, the justice system in Haiti is going to be difficult to actually, uh, find resolution in terms of the actors because unfortunately with so much corruption based on the fact you have these families that have so much wealth they could you know buy off judges and who knows but yeah at the same time it allows the united states to create a narrative that of like oh yeah we found these you know uh colombian mercenaries and who you know at you know with the help of some haitian pastor at a church in fort lauderdale are behind the assassin i don't believe any of these people are i mean yeah they may have been involved at a low level but again my position is that the assassination of Jovenel Moise is something that takes place at the behest of certain families in the Haitian oligarchy in tandem with at least the green light of the U.S. State Department. No one is assassinating a Haitian president without at least a, 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 a P- mild Pascal, green light. Pascal, just a quick question. Why the State Department? Or do you just basically mean the U.S. State The U.S. I'm just using that as a Okay, process. yeah, because the State Department is – okay, so okay, sorry, just as a synecdoche. My bad, sorry. Yeah, I'm just mean as the U.S. in general. I use that as a, I'm just using that as a as a proxy. I'm not necessarily saying that the Secretary of State was like, yeah, kill him. What yeah. I'm saying is that I would imagine it would come from the White House. That's yeah, why I someone was just within yeah. someone within the the apparatus of, of the administration either gave a wink and a nod or said, okay, get it done. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying there was like a conspiracy. Like they're like, yeah, kill him, kill him. But what I'm saying is that this is not the. The Haitian oligarchy is not going to assassinate a Haitian president without at least getting tacit support from the core group and the White House. That's my point. So I want to talk about the way out of this, which seems to flow through elections of some, you know, questionable legitimacy. But to do that, we need to first talk a little bit more, I think, about the man who would be overseeing those elections, who is Ariel Henry. Um, this, this is an interesting character to me. He's appointed prime minister, you know, just coincidentally a few days before Moise is assassinated, uh, and then, you know, is able to assume, uh, basically complete power having not been, as far as I can tell, uh, elected or even a, ratified by by a parliament. I don't know. Maybe that, maybe that happened and I no, missed the, it. The parliament, the parliament was, dis- had been disbanded for months prior so this is a, a completely unelected character on any in any level. Uh, I'm just curious, you know, where where he comes from and the role that he's supposed to be playing, and uh, how much actual legitimacy he has, not just sort of with the elite class, but but with the Haitian people uh, writ large. Well, Ariel Ali, the one unifying reality of uh, Haitian political life right now is that everyone hates this guy. Everyone, they, you know, the the uh, 
the peasantry hates him. The the Haitian petit, petit bourgeois hates him. The Haitian political class hates him. The Haitian diaspora hates him. I would argue that even the Haitian oligarchy hates this guy. And I think the only people who are happy with him are the core group and maybe the U.S. I mean, he's he's a he's a neurosurgeon by trade. Uh, he's a doctor. He was a political functionary that uh, uh, generally was in opposition, from what I understand, to the uh, uh, Lavalas party or the Aristide regime. Uh, he, you know, he has a good reputa- rep- reputation as a doctor, as a, as a uh, healthcare professional, but uh, he actually did come from a party, the Democratic Conversers Party movement that sought to topple Aristide. And so uh, the guy comes from the right-wing faction of the political establishment. But it strikes me that the main function of Ariel Henry is to make sure that there is not going to be any kind of radical left administration that takes power in Haiti and that whatever administration comes to power, it's going to maintain the political status quo. Uh, I don't think that he is particularly interested in a long-term political power for himself per se. I think he wants to effectively, effectively transition the government into a uh, position that works well for the foreign powers. So I guess uh, as sort of a final question, I'm going to ask you to, to do a little prognosticating, but what, what does that look like? What does that future look like? Do you expect that there will be some sort of international mission, occupation, peacekeeping operation, you know, call it whatever you want. Um, and, and, and then what, what, what happens in terms of elections uh, and, and uh, kind of, Putting a trying to put a government back together. I think that what will happen is that Ariel Henry will try to hold elections and use the call for elections as a pretext to gain legitimacy for an occupational force to come into Haiti to oversee the election and to neutralize the gangs while the election puts in power someone who is chosen by the core group and the United States. So the election will be used as a pretext to occupy the country. Pascal Robert, thank you so much for coming on AP. And we will, if you will grace us again, 100% have you back. Everyone check out This Is Revolution. Check out Pascal's writing elsewhere. And we'll see you all soon. Bye. Bye.